This program may contain explicit language. Also, we have a newsletter coming out. It's at slate.com slash gist news. Now on with the possibly filthy show. It's Tuesday, March 26, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Green New Deal was subject to a vote today in the Senate. It was kind of a confusing vote, so I will explain how it went down and what the politics were. I will say, unlike the Green New Deal itself, the energy used to support the Green New Deal seems unsustainable at the moment. I am not sure it's renewable. So here is the weird New Deal with the Green New Deal. The vote was 0 to 57. You may note there are 100 senators. Good, remember that. The vote wasn't for the bill or against it. It was about a measure against beginning debate. Got that? The Republicans, sensing a chance to make supporters of the GND twist, said, okay, you love it so much, let's debate it now. And the Democrats who liked it said, no, you're just doing that to make us twist. We're going to filibuster your time-consuming cynical measure. So they did. They filibustered the idea of starting a debate. And you thought carbon capture was complex. But check this out. The debate, in fact, could not be started because you do need 60 votes to break the filibuster. But I will now say a couple things procedurally, and then I will go on to a couple things analytically, and it's this. So the first thing is that the Democrats voted present, not for or against ending the filibuster. Is this a huge deal? I don't know. I do know that present worked just as good as no, don't end the filibuster, or in other words, continue the filibuster against beginning debate. Present worked just as well because the Mitch McConnell-led forces couldn't get to 60. Okay, fine, that's it. This is why we're moving on from that vote. But four Democrats did break with their caucus and voted with the Republicans, and that is bad for the other Democrats to have dissent in their ranks as the minority party in the Senate to begin with. So after all this, the Democrats claimed righteous anger at this dog and pony show. Right-wing outlets were crowing that these squirrely Dems didn't even back their own deal, and they hope that will dog them. Most of the media are ducking the arduous task of accurately describing congressional procedure, and if the environment isn't healed, all the animals in that aforementioned paragraph will perish. Perish, as will we. Okay, fine. My analysis, this is the sort of thing that makes people hate Congress, hate government, and I kind of think a hatred of government, if it moves the needle at all, ultimately helps the forces of an action. So maybe it's a horrible, cynical win for Mitch McConnell. But really, let's also mention that the Green New Deal is mostly crap. I mean, the basic stuff of we definitely have to take global warming seriously and do a lot to counteract it, absolutely true. But the specific details are bad. It's just bad as actual literal policy if implemented. Well, let's stop there. It just can't be implemented on the time frame they advise. It's overly broad. It's it's impossible. It's a practical impossibility. That's basically seen as a virtue by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the most progressive forces on the left who don't care about feasibility. In fact, they not only don't care about feasibility, they have a theory that feasibility is the enemy of action by moving the Overton window, which has become a kind of magical thinking. And what you do is you stake out a bolder negotiating stance. I disagree with the theory. I usually don't think that that is how government works mostly. But here's the bigger thing. Here's what I want to emphasize today. And this is the message I would like to give 
to the most progressive take no prisoners members of the Democratic caucus, not just on the Green New Deal, but on which is a dire issue, of course, but on impeachment, which I was talking about yesterday. Here is my message. You ready? You ready? Not everybody agrees with you. Okay? And you have to hold together a party and a country where not everybody is serving a far-left constituency and has a really safe seat. Furthermore, the the to-the-barracks rhetoric is actually a turnoff in a lot of the country, a lot of the country that if you don't win, you can't govern. You've got a Democrat in Alabama. You've got a Democrat in Arizona. Forget West Virginia. That's a lost cause. But let's talk about Angus King, actually an independent. He's not a climate denial maniac. A little bit about Angus King. He looks at his constituents nestled up there in Maine, in foresty, coastal Maine, not a lot of coal mining in Maine, and he has a pretty accurate sense of what his constituents want. He's a really good politician. Angus King, Nancy Pelosi, people like that, but Angus King, former governor, might understand politics a little bit. Angus King, by the way, carries around laminated fact sheets about global warming. Angus King's career was spent in the field of alternative energy. He founded the Northeast Energy Management Inc., which developed and operated electrical energy conservation projects, wound up saving about 50 million kilowatt hours of energy a year. He then went on to found, with the former head of Maine's Bureau of Public Lands and a former director of the Maine Advocacy Center for the Conservation Law Foundation, all right, those two guys, He went on to found a firm named Independence Wind, which, yeah, is a wind energy business. So this guy is to alternative energy, what James Inhofe is to the oil industry, what McConnell and Shelley Capito are to coal mines, what Ted Cruz is to smarminess. And you are alienating him. Again, not everyone agrees with you. Scorched earth is not the best way to save the planet. On the show today... I spiel about the oh-so-helpful memo put out by the Trump re-election campaign. Hey, TV networks, here's some advice. Why don't you ban these elected officials? The criteria? They criticized us. But first, in celebration of the publication of the paperback version of my book, upon further review, The Greatest What-Ifs in Sports History, gotta get the plug in, I bring you actually not a story from the book, but a contributor who wrote a story for the book, Liam Boylan Pett is here with the story of a man, and in fact, the man himself, who was falsely accused of murder, who served nearly 20 years, and who came out running. Liam Boylan Pett and Hugh Burton up next. Liam Boylan Pett is a, well, he's a friend of mine. He's a contributor to, upon further review for my money, the greatest sports anthology of uh, 2018, and now available in paperback soon in 2019. Okay, that's my book. And Liam, who is a four-minute miler himself, wrote about what if Roger Bannister essentially had better shoes and technology. But now he has this project, this really interesting project, where he writes about 
stories of track and running that interest him. Things from the women's steeplechase to training methods invented by, you know, crazy running coaches. But the latest issue of Lope magazine is called Innocent People Don't Run. And it concerns a man named Hugh Burton, who, well, I'm going to say hello to both of them. Hello, Hugh. How's it going? Good. Hello, Liam. Hello. How's it going? And so it concerns a man named Hugh Burton. And when did you first lay eyes upon Hugh Burton, Liam? Well, that was in August 2015. Uh, In May 2015, I had gone to my then-girlfriend. She's now my wife. Thanks, Ashley, for everything. Uh, She was graduating from Rutgers Law School. And I was there, you know, kind of, this is a law school commencement. How great is this going to be? But this woman was speaking. You know, even if your girlfriend wasn't graduating, just going to a law school commencement (laughs) is so fascinating. (laughs) And this woman, Laura Cohen, was speaking. And she was, I didn't know really exactly what she was at the time, but she's in charge of the Rutgers Criminal Youth and Justice Clinic. I might be getting that a little bit wrong. But she is essentially a public defender for Rutgers Law School. And she runs this clinic where the students come in and they help out. And in this speech she was giving, she was kind of the keynote speaker at my wife's graduation. And she mentioned this man who was wrongfully convicted of a crime. And she kind of offhand mentioned that he was also a runner. And this was around the time of serial. And I was like, oh, I'm going to go be an investigative reporter. I'm going to find out exactly what's going on. You needed the running angle, though. Yeah, yes. and there was this running angle. And I was working at Runner's World at the time. And she mentioned this guy. And so then I talked to Ashley and I said, hey, can we put me in touch with Laura Cohen? And she then put me in touch with Hugh. And I met him right outside the armory, another uh, track haven uh, on 168th Street up in uh, Washington Heights, which is around where Hugh lived. Yeah. And so, Hugh, when this guy, Liam, who's from Runner's World Magazine, wants to talk to you, have you, you've probably gotten a fair bit of press coverage, much for your running in the past? Um, actually not. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was just pretty much talk uh, as far as me uh, having an interest, interest in run, uh, wanting to run. Uh, so when Laura expressed that to Liam, he said, well, I, I really want to meet him. And uh, when he realized that I really wanted to get into running and different things like that, yeah. uh, the relationship really took off. After what kind that. of running were you doing then? Um, this was lo- 2015? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So actually what I was doing was long distance running. Um, I, I would watch, when I was inside, I would watch a lot of the guys who would run long distance. Inside prison. Yeah. yeah. And usually the long distance runners were a lot of the older prisoners. Mm-hmm. And... I was unable to make the connection. Why are these older guys being able to run these long distances, but the younger guys really couldn't do it? So um, I started to express an interest in wanting to learn how to do long distance running. So from there, you know, is when I really started. And um, I carried it with me in, uh, when I came out here. What, what facility were you in? Um, at the time when I started running, I was in uh, Napanock. So what rules did they have in terms of uh, wh- where they let you run, when they let you run? They couldn't let you run too far. Too yeah. uh, exactly, you can't run too far. But <laughs> you know, circles, the, yeah. right? But most, uh, most of the maximum security facilities they have uh, the yards are outfitted with quarter mile tracks. Right. So most guys run on run on the tracks. And um, the first time I started, I couldn't run two laps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so um, some of the older guys um, trained me how to run and what to do uh, in, in becoming better in running. And I started to associate a lot of those things with 
the journey that a lot of us take while we're inside. Yeah. So uh, running became therapeutic, um, and it became uh, symbolic of everything that we go through um, in our journey. So you went from not really being able to do half a mile, two laps, to how far could you run? Um, at the height, while I was in there, I've actually gotten up to 13 miles. Mm-hmm. From that, you know, two, one or two laps, I got up to 13 miles. Um, but... I used to watch running programs and things like that while I was inside. And I always said to myself that one day I eventually want to get to the point where I can actually run the New York City Marathon. Wow. I think in Lope, it mentions that they organized a marathon. Yeah. 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 So sometimes when you would see the uh, the marathon in November yeah. um, or, or the half in March, right. um, they would organize uh, runs with different organizations inside and they would raise money. Mm-hmm. So guys would come out and they would be able to stay outside when everybody had to go back inside. Right. But they're because just it, running. It takes... You know, three, four hours. Right, to run exactly. Marathon, so five, they, right, yeah. they allow them outside in the yard and, you know, listen, you guys can just stay out here and run. Yeah. Um, Did and, the other inmates think that was impressive? Like, like we on the outside would? Um, you know, I think that they thought that it was impressive, but I don't think that they were able to appreciate that these guys are here, that they don't have the, the proper training, they don't have the footwear, they don't have all of these things that guys have out here. And here it is, they're keeping up with these guys in the same time. Yeah. And I think that in and of itself is impressive, you know. And, and so how the, you know what, so we'll get to how the marathon went, but mm-hmm. I want to go back. The reason that the Innocence Project or the Rutgers version thereof was even talking about you was that you were in prison for how long? Uh, 19, uh, 20 years, 8 months. 20 years. And this was for the crime you were convicted of this is truly horrible since you didn't do it, was killing your mother. Yes. They said you did. Yes. And you were in what grade in high school? I was in 10th grade. 10th grade. Yeah. So the story goes, you do find your mother's corpse. Mm -hmm. Uh, You call the police? Yes. And then the police look at you as a suspect? Not not initially. Mm -hmm. Um, Initially, it was, you know, we'd just tell us about your whereabouts for that day. Um, I wasn't initially looked at as a suspect. Um, a couple of days after, the questioning went from tell us what happened to accusatory in nature. I'm not quite sure yeah. what was the shift, but it, w- it, was, it wasn't initially that I was a, a suspect. It wasn't until um, a few days after. And, and you signed a confession? Yes. How long were you detained before they got you to sign the confession? That session, because they brought you in a few times, right? Right. Well, no, they brought me in um, that early evening of mm-hmm. the 5th of January. When everything was said and done, it may have been about 2 in the morning. 2 in the morning. So when they everything was, like, said and done. And what was said and what was done, what they um, do? Me uh, um, confessing um, the interrogation, um, them getting someone to come in to have me do a videotape confession— Throughout all of those things, it was up, up until about 2 o'clock in the morning from the time that I went in. Do you think at that session they always had in mind that by the end of this they were going to get you on tape confessing? Their mind was made up by the time they brought you in that final time? Mm, that's that's an interesting question. Um, I can't say what they were thinking. Um, as a 16-year-old looking at the adults in the room, I don't know. So this was what, 1989? This was 89. 89, height yeah. of the crack epidemic, height of right. height of the crack craze, and that 
actually played a big role yeah. in that you had smoked. Am I getting this right? I don't want to say anything that was wrong. That was the story that they... Um, that was the story that you told you you had smoked, you were high, you were mad at your mother, and they said you stabbed your mother. Right. They, you said you stabbed your mm-hmm. mother. What in the original confession... Well, I want to ask you a couple questions. When mm-hmm. you wrote the original confession, did you, looking back, do you, did you say to yourself, I know I'm signing something that's fictional? Did you say to yourself, well, maybe this did happen and I can't, I'm not remembering it right? What were you saying to yourself when you signed and made the statement confessing to this thing you didn't commit? Well, what I was saying was what they were saying to me, that if I do sign and mm-hmm. make this confession that I would be taken to family court and that these things would be made right. Right. Um, and as a young kid uh, coming up from the time in which I came up, that was one of the things that my parents always uh, taught me. You know, it was uh, always listen and, and respect law enforcement. They right. have your best interests. So. By them telling me at this age that, you know, this is what you need to do. This will be your best interest. Um, I went with that. And it wasn't, it wasn't, so after a lot of hours of, of trying to get me to do this, but they made me feel like this was the only option that I had. Even as I'm thinking about it now, it's like, it's a lot. It's a, it's, it's, oh, yeah. It's, it's a lot to process, yeah. you know. Did they at any point read your rights or told you you had the right to a lawyer? No. At trial, were you, since this was a false confession, mm-hmm. as was later proved, were you represented adequately, would you say? I was definitely um, represented adequately. Um, it's just that what I, what I have to say is that um, we have to look at the temperament and the time. Yes. These things, although we look at them now in 2019 and say, you know, if we look at the facts of this case, we're like, this is utterly ridiculous. Like, all you had to say was the word crack and everything made sense. Nobody questioned anything. You know, not even your own people questioned anything. So um, it was easy to manufacture things, Um, things that as I said, would not be able to stand in 2019. So, Liam, for this, how much reporting did you do on the facts of the case, just the criminal facts, that uh, material that wasn't out there? Because it did get some, Hughes' case did get some attention when he was exonerated. So how much original reporting did you do? Um, I had done a lot with Laura and Hugh um, in the lead-up, and a lot of that ended up being, you know, put into these stories of his exoneration, and that was completely great. My story was not... A, it turned into not about his exoneration right. as much as his path through running and what it has meant to him and what it's meant to me. I mean, I I turned into his friend, not his journalist, you know? Right. So there was, there was that. And I think one thing that with the wrongful uh, confession is that these detectives, they were caught doing it three times in a four-month period. There's a good chance they did it a lot more than that. They were doing some shady business back then. The first time I met Hugh in August 2015, he kind of just said to me, this all had to have been for something. And I think that what's really to take out of Hugh's story is that even in 2016, when he ran the marathon and he was officially still on parole, he had his parole officer checking in on him every other day. The police were watching him as he walks to the subway. This man still ran. And now he's free officially as of January 24, 2019. Yeah. And he's going to run the marathon this year. And this is for something. He's he's doing this because he wants other people to be affected by his story. He wants to make other people interested in running, interested in these terrible cases of other people like him. This is this was for something. So I'm very just glad for Hugh and proud that he was able to do this even then and now today too. Ah. 
And so what effect, uh, other than, I, I understand in uh, prison, it was very important for you to get some running in for your mm-hmm. uh, just mental state. Right. After prison, what did it become? A goal? A uh Leisure activity? What did it? What did it come to mean to you? Um, running actually became s- symbolic of staying the course, um, because I had come out here and it's like, okay, well, I'm still committed to fighting. Most people who come out and you're on parole and it's like, okay, well, look, I'm here now. It's it's okay. Yeah. Um, that wasn't enough for me um, because we hadn't gotten to the truth, um, and. For me, that's what running was. It's like, yo, you still got to keep going. Um, it's not it's not a sprint. It's not a 100-yard dash. Right. You know, you're not going to get to the end when you think you're going to get to the end. Um, you're going to really have to stay the course. There's going to be times where you're going to want to give up. Um, you're going to cramp up. You're, you know, um, you just want to stop, but you can't. Um, you ran that 2016 marathon? Yes. How'd you do? What was your time? Ah, oh, sucked. It was 4.30. It's not bad. <laughs> is that bad for a first marathon? It's not bad it for your first one, especially when your long run was only 12. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you run for the Innocence Project? Are you raising money for them? Um, I did in 2016. Yeah. Um, I'm going to see what we can do and where we can raise money for this year, you know. So, um, it'll Did you be get fun. a settlement from the state? Um, no. And, you know, what was interesting about that is that— um, I've heard that before, and it's like my mind wasn't even there. Um, my thing is about having people be accountable for the choices that they made right. in terms of my life in 89. Um, as Liam was saying, there was guys that before me, and I'm sure that there were guys after me. So, you know, um, I really want to deal with that first before we deal with anything else in terms of conversation or anything like that. Hugh Burton is the... Subject of the uh, Loop magazine story, Innocent People Don't Run, Liam Boylan Pett is not just the author of that story, but the impresario behind all of Loop magazine. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you. And now the spiel. These sloppy propagandists atop our government have a useful suggestion for television producers everywhere. I know this because the Trump re-election campaign issued a memo where the subject line two read television producers. So I guess pay attention, Dick Wolf, Tina Fey, and everyone in between. They probably meant news producers. You know, people protected by the First Amendment. So the helpful tip from the Trump campaign was that the news no longer book elected officials if those elected officials acting in their capacity as guardians of the public trust have ever voiced a sentiment that the Trump re-election campaign believes contradicted the Mueller report's finding that there was no criminal coordination and cooperation between the first Trump campaign and Russia. Got that? Everyone who ever said, oh, things aren't looking good. Let's look into this a little more. Let's get them off the airwaves for now and forever. So this memo, I'm going to call it the blacklisting memo. That'd be overly fair to them. They're just calling for an extreme vetting of these very, very dangerous public officials. So let's say the blacklisting memo. Let's go through the list. The first official that the Trump re-election campaign recommends be banned, Senator Richard Blumenthal. And I will read the offensive quote, which was uttered on the MSNBC show All In in October of 2018. 
Here's the quote as presented on this blacklist memo. Quote, the evidence is pretty clear that there was collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians. Okay, couple notes. One, that's a qualified statement, pretty clear. But you know what? Let's go to the actual, more full exchange to see what Blumenthal was getting at. The evidence is pretty clear that there was collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians. And You think there's evidence pretty clear? The, the evidence is there. Whether they have enough of it right. to bring criminal charges is another issue entirely. And likewise with obstruction of justice charges. Uh-huh. So when the former U.S. attorney and attorney general of the state of Connecticut, Richard Blumenthal says, in his opinion, there seems to be evidence of collusion, right? He's saying, seems to me there was some evidence of collusion. He also, we just heard with our own ears, he specifically said it might not be enough evidence to prove collusion. Let us now contrast that with what must be the 180 degree take that Robert Mueller put forth. He said, literally, there was not enough evidence to prove, well, he didn't say collusion. He said coordination and cooperation because collusion is a term of art. So not only did Blumenthal not say anything wrong, he literally didn't say anything that was contradicted by the Mueller report. There is nothing in the statement that we heard that can be called a lie by any definition of the word lie. A lie has to be uttered knowingly. A lie cannot be a statement of belief and a lie. And this is really important. A lie has to be false. There is nothing about what Richard Blumenthal said that is a lie. In fact, think about it this way. If you were to assess the honesty of Richard Blumenthal's statement and contrast that with the honesty of the Trump re-election campaign description of that statement, which one is the outlandish and false claim? Which one seems more dishonest to you? Well, that's just the first statement that the re-election campaign cited. We got five more to go. Surely the next one will be more glaring than what you just heard from Blumenthal. Bullet point number two in the Trump blacklist memo. Rep. Adam Schiff, this is him talking on Face the Nation. Here is the quote as quoted in the memo. I think there's plenty of evidence of collusion or conspiracy in plain sight. Again, that is a statement of belief. All right, so going in, they didn't really quote something that could be a lie, but let's hear the more full exchange from Face the Nation. The first voice you will hear is the questioner, Margaret Brennan. Can you agree that there has been no evidence of collusion coordination or conspiracy that has been presented thus far between the Trump campaign and Russia? Uh, no, I don't agree with that at all. I think there's plenty of evidence of collusion or conspiracy in plain sight. Now, that's a, a different statement than saying that there's proof beyond a reasonable doubt of a criminal conspiracy. This is just like the Blumenthal clip. Schiff, a former assistant U.S. attorney, is being accurate. He's underlining his belief in process. He's talking about how the law works. If anything, he's making a statement against self-interest. If you perceive his self-interest to be, let's thwart the judicial process and just rush to a guilty verdict. His entire statement there was an affirmation of the judicial process. It is exactly the kind of cautious statement you might want out of a public official who has fairly assessed the evidence known to him and also seen by all of us. It strikes me that not only does this blacklist memo rely on bad faith and truncated quotes, it relies also on an inaccurate description and definition of evidence. The blacklist memo makes it seem like any evidence, any time an official cites evidence, what that official is saying is 
sufficient evidence to bring a charge. But in the quotes we heard, the official specifically makes note that there might not be sufficient evidence to bring a charge. Now, if any of the elected officials said, I think there is sufficient evidence, they wouldn't be lying, but at least they'd be at odds with what the Mueller report said. But so far, that's not what's going on here. So far, calling for them to be banned is just a cynical Gestapo tactic, and none are actually contradicting the Mueller findings. What about the next one? Here is Jerry Nadler. He was on CNN. I couldn't find the actual audio, but I'll read you. First, I'll read you the charge that the Blacklist memo cites. They said Jerry Nadler said on CNN, there was obviously a lot of collusion. The question is how high. Every day, every so often, we get new information about involvement. Okay, so among him and Blumenthal and Schiff, what we just heard, that, what I just read, that seems the least severe. It seems more benign. It seems pretty accurate. It even seems on its face, that thing I just read, it seems kind of responsible, right? Every so often, we get new information about involvement. Again, I don't have the audio. Let me read the transcript. This is from October 2017. CNN's Aaron Burnett says, Trump today tweeted, It's commonly agreed after many months of closely looking that there was no collusion between Russia and Trump. That was her quoting a Trump tweet. And then Nadler said, it's a lie. It's not commonly agreed. Let's pause. This is Mike saying, I think that's accurate. It's not commonly agreed. That's why we had a Mueller report. And then Nadler went on to say, there was obviously a lot of collusion. The question is how high. Every day we, every day, every so often, we get new information about involvement. That was the part that the Blacklist memo quoted. He goes on to say, we know now that the lawyer who was at the meeting with Trump Jr., etc., did in fact have information about Hillary Clinton from the prosecutor general of the Soviet of Russia. He corrects himself. So there was involvement. Whether there was deliberate conclusion remains to be seen, but that has to be investigated. So here's Gerald Nadler being cautious, not jumping to conclusions, citing facts. And let's remember this. There was collusion. All right. Not between Trump and Russia, but Mueller was charged with investigating collusion, and he did find collusion. He found it among agents of the IRA. He found it in WikiLeaks and Roger Stone and Paul Manafort, who were charged, who were charged, who pled, who's fighting. So what Nadler was saying there wasn't even an assertion of the president having colluded. They were just a factual assessment of the actual documented and quite serious collusion that the Mueller report found and that the bar letter acknowledged. Ah, ah, I don't want to scream too loud. Just, ah, I'm not going to read the next three quotes in the memo because aneurysm. I will say that they do quote the ex-director of the CIA, John Brennan, saying Trump's behavior was treasonous. Okay, that is his assessment. It goes beyond everything we heard the very responsible and proper statements made by the actual elected officials. All right, so listen, if it's true, and it's not, but if, it, if it's true that Trump and his allies really, really don't want dishonesty or inaccuracy on TV, then what I would recommend is that no one on TV read this letter, quote, to television producers on their TV station. Here's the second sentence of that letter. The special counsel also made no recommendation on obstruction, which is a decision in itself. I ask you, is it? Is that actually more accurate as a fact or is it more inaccurate and misleading? I don't know. 
I, I come back to the common conundrum always present with Trump, which is, should we even pay attention to this sort of thing? I know you as the listener didn't come into this <laughs> believing, oh, maybe the campaign has a point and Adam Schiff and Jerry Nadler should be banned from television. I know you didn't believe this. And I guess you could say that I'm amplifying the Trump message by repeating it. But what am I repeating? I'm repeating a lie and calling it a lie. I'm repeating Trump propaganda. And I do have this guiding principle that I think it's better to find the lie, to point to the lie, and to say that's a lie. That's the best thing, one of the best things I could do. To say it about anyone who lies, to say it about everything that's inaccurate, and I've got to believe that being able to discern a truth from a lie is still a valuable skill. And if that skill were to be practiced on a national scale, it would do us all a lot more good than harm. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Pierre Bianame and Daniel Schrader. Now, I've been saying that Pierre and Daniel produced The Gist. I've been lying a little bit over the last few days. There was a vacation. Someone was assigned to produce another show. But I got to say, today's show, they really both produced The Gist. No lie. TJ Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcasts. When the question was asked, should we say gifts or no gifts on the invitation? TJ voted present. The gist. I do vote present. But having voted on the measure, my conscience is clear. And that, having voted, that's actually not present. That's the past perfect tense being used as an adjectival phrase. Umpur depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>